42. And, um, but that's okay. And so uh, I felt the need to bring us up to speed, and then we'll get into the pastor passage and go on from there. And so let's bow our heads so the Spirit can work in our hearts. Father, as we come and to put our thoughts upon you, it's amazing to think that we can open your word and to realize that the God of all creation has revealed himself in the pages of your word. That you used its writers through the power of the Spirit to give us exactly what we needed to know on how to live, but even more importantly, on how we're to view you, how we can serve you, and how we can live for you. Father, we think about all of the distractions that are around us this day, how so many things can just put anxiety within our hearts, so many things can just be a distraction on us coming and to put our thoughts upon you. But we thank you that we can come and to leave those concerns at the foot of the cross because we understand the aspect of our forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that you are a God who cares for us, that you are a God full of loving kindness and everlasting mercy. We thank you that you can, and it is your desire to change our lives from our time that we spend in your word. For Father, each one of us are in a different place in our, in our walk with you. There may be some here, Father, that may not even know who you are and fully understand, but we thank you that your spirit can be at work to even to take the most hardest of hearts and to make it soft and supple. And so we ask that your spirit can work so that through his activity that we can bring your name glory for what your son had accomplished on the cross. And so, Father, we ask that you can speak to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open up to Genesis chapter 42. We're currently in the book of Genesis, for when my number is called, that's sort of where, where we go. And in the past, I was going to be taking the express train through, and it turned out I got on the wrong train, and it turned out to be the local train that stops at every stop. But that's okay. Looking at the life of Joseph has really convicted my own heart. For the book of Genesis is essentially God working out his providential plan through his people, and here through the life of Joseph. The book of Genesis is really emphasizes four events and four people. The events are creation, fall, flood, nations. And then it emphasizes the lives of four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the book itself is divided up into 11 portions. Um, those portions are called Toledotes, which means these are the generations of. Toledo is the Hebrew word for these are the generations of. And we are currently in the last Toledot of the book of Genesis, which, is, which focuses on the life of Jacob. And as it looks at the life of Jacob, we have the story of Joseph in the midst of it. And though it looks at Joseph, it's really God working through Jacob, through his life, to bring about a people and a nation called after him. There are no more Toledotes that are going to be found in the book because when Jacob's life comes to an end, they're in Egypt. And in Egypt, they're going to stay for 400 years to where we get the nation of Israel. And so the book also centers around, as we've seen in the past, three main themes. The theme of a land, the theme of a, uh, a seed, and the theme of a blessing. God is going to speak to Abraham, give him promises, give him a covenant that he is going to fulfill. There's a promise of a land, there's a promise of a seed, and there's a promise of a blessing. 
And each time that God tells his people um, about the covenant that he has made with Abraham, he deepens it and he clarifies it. And so Joseph is in the midst of God working out this, um, these set of promises that there will be a land, and currently Jacob is in the land, but they won't be for long. They will be a seed, and there will be blessings. And we've also seen through the life of Joseph, his brothers, I call them the Jacob boys, they've been active. And when you look at them, they're nothing to write home about. We've seen um, Jacob and his sons since chapter 37. And as this one section opens up, we see them again because we haven't seen them since chapter 37. And when you look at Jacob and his boys, they put the meaning of dysfunction into the term dysfunctional family. There is nothing special about them. Jacob is like the worst father as a father can be. And the sons outside of Joseph, they're, they're terrible. They're a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels. When you look at Jacob, Jacob has had a hard life thus far. He worked for seven years to marry his great love, uh, Rachel. And he found out after his wedding night, after working those seven years, that he woke up to his sister, and so the, he, she was the one, Leah, the one that he didn't love. And so he worked for another seven years to marry the, the woman that he did love. So he had two wives. And so in the book that emphasizes seed, Rachel turns out to be barren. Children comes into Jacob's family through Leah and through the two handmaidens. And it's not until uh, Rachel prays to the Lord that God answers her prayer and she bears a son named Joseph. Joseph will become Jacob's favorite son because Rachel is the favorite wife. Rachel eventually has a second son named Benjamin and then she dies in child labor with him. And it's going to crush Jacob for his entire life. Reuben, the firstborn son of Leah... He commits incest with his father's concubine and is disinherited from becoming the firstborn of the family. The firstborn of the family, as we're going to see as the uh, next few chapters sort of unfold, would receive the privileges and the authority and the wealth of the family. Jacob is now the patriarch of the family, and the blessing is, uh, of everything that he has done will go through the firstborn. But he's disinherited. When you look at the second and third sons of Jacob, is Simeon and Levi. They are mass murderers. Not just murderers, they're mass murderers. In Genesis chapter 34, their sister Diana was abducted and raped by Shechem. And later Shechem wanted to marry her. And so Simeon and Levi constructed a plan and agreed to have them marry into the family. But they needed to circumcise every male in their community. And so they agreed to it. And three days later, Simeon and Levi came and slaughtered everyone. When the men were unable to defend themselves, they just killed them all. The fourth son, Judah, well, he's mentioned in chapter 38. Right after Joseph is sold in, in slavery in chapter 37, we have Genesis chapter 38 about Judah and then, in, then about Tamar. Some commentators have said that chapter 38 is out of place because you have Joseph's life, Judah's situation, and then for the rest of the book you have more, of, more on Joseph. But in Genesis chapter 38, this section that seems to be out of place about Judah, we find Judah willingly leaves the promised land, willingly marries outside of the covenant people, and is, and is satisfied with that. Commits gross immorality with Tamar. What's the big deal? This, this is a huge deal. 
Because it demonstrates exactly where Judah's heart is at. Why is Genesis chapter 38 found there? Well, you're going to have to wait to Genesis chapter 49 to find out. But we'll eventually get there at some point. But it's there for a reason. Because the big issue when you begin to look at the rest of the, rest of the, the Jacob boys is that where is the seed going to come from? Where is that promised seed? Whose bloodline is it going to go through? And so that is key because it has to come through one of Jacob's sons. And when you look at the sons, even the other ones, there's nothing redeeming or noteworthy about them except for Joseph. Joseph walks with God. And we are told that the Lord is with Joseph. Even through all the hard circumstances Joseph went through, God was still close to him. He trusted in the Lord, and the Lord was teaching him that he is providentially working in his life despite the circumstances around him. But there's only one problem with Joseph. He's outside of the promised land. Where is the seed coming from? He's away from the covenant people living in a pagan land. And finally here in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph is going to come face to face with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And it's interesting because as I've been working um, on this passage for a while, it's been difficult because not only is it a narrative, but how do you begin to understand exactly what is going on? And the commentators, they're all over the map on what is going on, on Joseph's um, motivation, on why he conceals his identity. And it was sort of hard to sort of get an understanding until I read Vody Bauckham's book on Joseph. And I am indebted to him. Because once I begin to see how he put things together, the pa this passage and the following ones just opened up in this understanding. So I am indebted to him. And as we're going to be seeing this week and then next week, that there are seven tests that Joseph is going to test his brothers. Jo Joseph is going to intentionally test them because he needs to find out where they are. And there, there, there are two main reasons why he's going to test them. The first one is Joseph needs to discern where their brother's character are after 20 years. He hasn't seen them in 20 years. He's been away from God's covenant community for 20 years. He hasn't heard a word of Hebrew in 20 years. And in this passage, he's going to recognize them. He's going to know them. But where are they? But secondly, and more importantly, is that where are they spiritually? He knows that God works in people's hearts. God has been with him for those 20 years. And even though his situation has been difficult, even though he views his entire situation, even though he's been exalted to prime minister in Egypt, as he is in the land of his affliction. It's not the wealth that gives him any enjoyment. He would rather trade that in and be with his family in the promised land, in fulfilling the covenant that God has fulfilled to his family. But more importantly is where are his brothers? Where are they? He learned how to trust God. He learned how to depend on God. But where are they after 20 years? And so it's interesting because I'm sure that with these seven questions that he's going to ask or test his brothers for, his response is going to reflect on how they pass the tests. Because I'm sure that if, they're, if they turn out to be the same scoundrels as they were before, there would be no happy ending when things unfold. But if God has done a work in someone's life, 
there is a place to where he would be able to rejoice. So it is a testing of faith. Are they the same men or have they been changed? Will there be a tearful reunion or will he have to take other steps? And so the testing of faith is not something new. We find it throughout Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, we find this verse on how we are called to examine the faithfulness of others by the fruit they produce. Look at verse 15. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruits, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. And then in verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. We are to test and evaluate by the fruit that is produced. So Joseph is trying to evaluate where are they? Do they claim, as they should, to have a relationship with the covenant God? Or are they still the same murderous, hateful, sensual people that they were before? And so we're called to examine the fruit that is produced in others' lives. But yet, more importantly, we're also called to examine ourselves. Look at, uh, you don't have to turn there, but look at 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. It says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail the test. We're called to examine ourselves. How do you know that your faith is real? How do you know that your faith is genuine? Why? How? Well, what's, what's the fruit that is produced? What are the things done that shows that your faith is genuine? And so Paul says there, test yourself. Examine what evidence is there. Does one have a work righteousness type of system to where I can sort of give you, I do this, and I attend this, and I give this, and I'm really pretty good. I'm not that, well, then you're failing the test. Why? It's where your faith is in. But we'll talk more about that later. And so... We're called to examine ourselves. That's not the only place, because we could look at, but we, we won't. The entire epistle of 1 John is very black and white. Is your faith, faith real? Is your faith genuine? Well, John tells us in, in 1 John, he gives us all, all of these elements to see if you have a faulty faith or a genuine faith. Because as we're going to see, with, especially with the Jacob boys, they knew about the God of Abraham and Isaac. They heard the stories. But are they walking with him? Are the past events that they have done an indicator on where they currently are at? In the epistle of John, there are no gray areas. Either you are or you're not doesn't mean that your faith is real, but a faith that needs to get examined to make sure you're walking correctly. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Pastor Joey looked at that last week, that very aspect, the fear of the Lord, that godly reverence that, um, that we need to have, not to add to our salvation or to gain salvation, but what is the result of the salvation that we claim? That is what we are to work out. There should be a desire that, that backs it, not just in acknowledgement of the faith that we have. So how do you know? Just one more verse. Look at 1 John 2 in verse 29. It says, You know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The verb in, in that one sentence is found in the present tense, meaning if you continually, habitually practice righteousness, what are the things that one is known for? And so as we begin to unfold Genesis chapter 42 this week and next week, we are going to see that it is also an examination for ourselves. Because I can't be a proxy for yourself to tell you that your faith is real or if it's faulty. But what I can do is to come alongside you to say, what is the fruit that is being produced in your life? so that you can have the assurance of your salvation that it is real, that it is genuine. Because even uh, Pastor Joey mentioned Matthew chapter 7, many will say on the last day, Lord, Lord. And the Lord's going to say, you know what, I, I never knew you. They're going to say, look at all the stuff I've done. And the Lord's going to say, I never knew you. And so this is an aspect to where Joseph is going to bring about a testing. And it is a testing for us for ourselves. That's why as we begin to unfold things, next week's message is actually key because it continues. And we're just going to sort of scratch the surface of things. And so, though you need to be here next week, um, it is summer, so I know. But that's okay. It's going to be somewhere out there. And so, that's okay. And so, Joseph is going to bring about a testing for his brothers. And he's going to withhold his trust from his brothers until he finds out how they will pass the test. And so there are seven questions that we're going to be looking at this week and to next week that sort of builds on the aspect of where are they? Especially where are they with their walk with God? And so that's key. And it's interesting because one of the things that though the passage doesn't necessarily talk about the Holy Spirit, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit is going to be working in the lives of his brothers to prick their conscience, to scream within their hearts, to turn to him, to show them that within their hearts that there is sin that needs to be dealt with. And so we'll be unfolding that too. And it's interesting because we don't really speak about the conscience all that much. It's, we know that it's there, but sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what the conscience is. And basically the conscience is just a God-given mechanism that he has given to every person to convict their heart of what is inherently right and what is inherently wrong. It's just a mechanism. So when we do something wrong, it brings about shame, it brings about guilt, it brings about regret. Parents don't have to teach their children when they do something wrong that they feel bad about it. So when you violate your conscience, your conscience will either condemn you, it will trigger feelings of shame and anguish, sometimes disgrace, sometimes even fear. It's God-given. It's in every heart, in every culture. But when you follow your conscience, it will commend you. It can bring about joy and peacefulness and well-being and gladness. And so the conscience in a person is very important because the conscience, and it has been described by John MacArthur this way, as the conscience functions sort of like a skylight, but it's not a light bulb. A skylight lets light into the soul. It doesn't produce its own source of light. It just brings light in. 
Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light you expose it to and by how clean you keep it. Cover it or put in total darkness and it ceases to function. And so what he's saying there is that we can make our conscience callous or hardened or numb to the effects. And so that's why with some people, they just lessen their, their, their conscience. It just doesn't work properly. But God, through his Holy Spirit, can begin to turn it back on when he wants to work in someone's hearts. And as we're going to see, the hound of heaven is going to be nipping at the heels of the Jacob boys, of Joseph's brothers, to awaken their hearts from where they are at. And so he's going to convict them of how guilty and sinful they actually are. And so, unfortunately, unless you want me to pretend I'm in Russia, we're going to have to divide this into two parts. But its repercussions as things unfold are going to extend into the next two chapters. So until then, let's, let's dive in with the moments that we have left. Um, let's look at, at our chapter, and instead of um, beginning in verse 40, uh, 42, I want to go back to the end of 40. Of 41, beginning at verse 53, to sort of set the context for you. Because it's been two months since I've spoken last, and so we're here. And so at verse 53 of chapter 41, it says, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. So that was the result of Pharaoh's dream. There would be seven years of plenty. Store up as much as you can. It was, there was so much food that it was overflowing that they probably didn't know where to put some of it. And then in verse 54, And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So there's famine in the land. And famine generally happens either of drought or insects, but food cannot be produced. And so for farmers, you sort of plan for the next season. And if you have a, a bad season, you may be able to get through to the following season. But if it's severe and you don't plan for it, if you don't store up food, sooner or later, you will begin to, um, through rationing, run out of food, and know that you have to do something drastic. And so at some point, Jacob began to realize whether or not it was three months into the drought, they knew that the season was going to be bad, whether it was six months in, um, into the famine, that you begin to realize things are not just serious, but they're very serious. That this was not a game that they were playing. Somehow their situation was not just going to blow over and just wait for the next, the next rainstorm to come. That things were just a matter of life or death. And the finding of food will begin to go into one's mind that will determine who will live and who will die. That's how severe the famine was. Now, we in this country don't know that kind of thinking. You know, we live in a land of plenty. We usually don't have to think about storing up food, and then what if something were to happen where the food supply would be affected? Now, we got a little taste of that during the pandemic, if you remember. You know, the first time ever, the shelves were sort of empty. You know, for, for, for many of us, we got to the place where we began to realize what do we do if we run out of toilet paper? And so things like that begin to fill our mind where we never had to think about it before. And so there was no food anywhere 
except in Egypt. And the word began to spread like wildfire that there was plenty of grain in Egypt. So that's the backdrop. Look at verse 1 of 42. Now Joseph saw that there was grain in Egypt, and he said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? That's a very interesting statement because it sort of seems out of place. You know, Jacob is thinking about famine. Uh, as, as we we're going to see, he's thinking about, you know, starvation, you know, finding food. And we find this first statement here. Why are you staring at one another? I believe that, that this is an indicator that Moses gives us here of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that is taking place. That he is talking about that there is food in Egypt. Getting into details about Egypt. And it troubles Jacob's son's hearts. They hear the father discussing all these things. And it's a topic that they probably did not ever bring up. It's been sort of called guilty words. And we've all sort of had uh, have like these words or phrases that sort of trigger negative emotions that we try not to think about. There may have been events or people that we've come in contact with or things that have happened to where um, they either, either we've sinned and we feel guilty, but uh, certain words or maybe even songs that we hear on the radio that I never want to hear that. Because it triggers emotions. And I'm sure for the Jacob boys, they never, ever talked about Egypt. And as his father was sort of discussing Egypt, they're staring at, at each other. Because it was something they didn't, probably never even brought up in a conversation, anything about it for 20 years. Because it triggered the guilt of what has happened to, that they did intentionally to his brother. And it brought about guilt and shame and all of the emotions and, um, that it brought, brought back. And so they're staring at one another. And Jacob notices it. What, what's going on? Why, why are you doing that? I, th I find that very interesting. And it's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit beginning to expose the guilt that is in their heart. Verse 2. Let's go on. And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Starvation was in his mind. I want you boys to go and I want you to bring back grain so we will live and not die. And so go to Egypt or starve. Those, that was the choices, and he tells his son to go. And then in verse 3, then the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain in Egypt. But we have to look at verse 4. There's a contrast. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Here we begin to see where Jacob's heart is at spiritually. His heart is filled with fear. It's probably been there since Rachel, his favored wife, died and then especially brought about by the uh, tragic death of his favorite son, Joseph, and how he mourned and refused to be comforted. He wanted no comfort from anyone because of Joseph's death. And he's probably been in a state of mourning for 20 years. And so he holds on to the only thing that he could be in control of, of his second favored son, Benjamin. When Benjamin was born, he had the name of Benoi, meaning the son of my affliction. That's what Rachel named her son. It was so painful that not only was there great pain, 
which there was, but it also took her life. There was such great pain. This is the son of my affliction. But Jacob renames him to the son of my right hand, meaning he's special too. And so Joseph and Benjamin, they were the choice. The other ten, as we're going to see, Jacob really didn't care. But that's for next time. And fear gripped his heart. And so though he had no control over, over his favorite wife dying, and he had no control over Joseph's death, he did have control over his son's life. I'm not going to put him into any type of tragic situation or difficult situation to where his life may be taken. And that's sad. 20 years of no growth in the Lord. 20 years of his heart being just in a state of numbness. There was no trusting in, in the Lord, especially in this situation, because sending uh, Benjamin you, in, in a time of famine, you need the extra hands and the extra donkey. You need the extra people to bring back more food. And he chooses to um, keep his son close to him. And God is at work to awaken Jacob's callous heart. But here he wallows in his sorrow rather than trusting in God. But in verses 6 through 24, we begin to see the situation as Joseph confronts his brothers and we find the first test beginning to get exposed in verse 6. And as this section opens, we find out that Joseph will intentionally keep his identity secret. He doesn't immediately reveal himself to his brothers. He's going to keep his identity um, secret, especially for the next two chapters. And I know for myself, that is, you know, keeping a secret for that long, especially when he wants to see his family. He hasn't spoken Hebrew. He, um, if, if it's like me, I just would have sort of blurted things out. But that's the 17-year-old Joseph would have done that. Because ask, ask Jason in, uh, uh, about his engagement and see if I almost blew that for him. It, it just sort of came out. And uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not on the uh, internet that often enough to sort of keep up. And so when I see you, how's, do I have to say congratulations? Yeah, yeah. And so that's all right. So here he could have immediately revealed himself, but he didn't do that. He keeps his identity secret. But there's a second aspect on why he keeps his identity secret. Or, or what, he, what he could have done. As soon as he recognized them, he could have taken them into custody, exposed them as the, as the scoundrels as they were, and had them killed on the spot. And no one in Egypt would have questioned his authority or right to do so. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he delays and he hides his identity. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. And then it goes on, but he disguised himself to them, spoke harshly, to them and said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And so he sees his brothers. He recognized them. To his brothers, Joseph just looked like a normal, high ranking Egyptian official. There's a translator there who's translating the Hebrew that they're speaking into Egyptian. And when Joseph there, he looks like an Egyptian. These Egyptian clothes, his facial hair and things, they're all Egyptian. There's nothing in his actions or demeanor would have given thought to anyone that he was Hebrew. 
but he hides his identity. And it says, and it's going to come out uh, throughout this one passage, he speaks harshly to them because he's testing them. And the first test that, Jesus, that um, Joseph needs to find out is that if Benjamin is alive, he doesn't know. And so he sees them, verse 8, and jo Joseph recognized his brother, although they did not recognize him, and he remembered the dreams which he had about them. This is a subtle reminder of, of Joseph's faith. Because Joseph, 23 years previously, was given by God these dreams that sort of triggered the, hate, the hatred of his brothers to where they, were, they first plotted to kill him and then they plotted to sell him into slavery. It's been 23 years and now he sees the partial fulfillment of that dream. They're bowing before him. 23 years previously, they basically said, Joseph, we will never bow before you. And here they willingly bow down because they think he's a high-ranking official. But it's only a partial fulfillment because they're going to bow again a second time, willingly, when they know that he's Joseph, their brother, they bow. This repeat of things in Joseph's life is significant because almost everything in Joseph's life gets repeated twice. And the reason for that goes back to his dream with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had two, two dreams. And Joseph tells Pharaoh the reason why it's repeated is because God is in this. Joseph has three pairs of dreams. His brothers has two different plans to do away from him. Joseph experiences two humiliations and two exaltations. Here now in this story, they, they bow down twice. And this story, which has taken place, gets repeated by the end of the chapter. It's an indicator for the reader reading through Joseph's life that I want you to know that God is in the activities. God is providentially moving in Joseph's life, unfolding things, and despite whatever situation one goes through, you can trust in him. And this is a continuation of that. Everything gets doubled. It's supposed to leap off the page if you're reading it for the first time. And so here we have the bowing that is going to get repeated later. Because Moses wants us to know that God is in control. And he takes us along the ride so that we can have our trust fortified in that aspect. But yet there's another aspect that is going on here I want you to notice. Because he recognizes his brothers and he sees that they are there in front of him. And I'm sure, though we're not told, in his mind he counts. One, two, three. Three, seven, eight, nine, ten. We're missing one. Where is Benjamin? Joseph was 17 years old, a teenager, when he was sold into slavery. His other brothers were either in their middle 20s or in the 30s. They were adults. And so, of course, he would recognize them because they looked fairly much the same. But if you think back when you look at 17, when I was 17, my hair was down to here. I, and my hair wasn't gray. I looked a little different. And so Joseph would recognize them, but he realizes, where's Benjamin? Where's his younger brother? And so he needs to determine if his brothers did the same thing to Benjamin as they did to him. Did they kill Benjamin or did they sell him into slavery too? He needed to know. And why does he want to know? Because it brings about a principle that he's trying to determine. He's trying to determine if the sins of their past 
continue to characterize them in the present. If their brothers are the same dirty, rotten scoundrels, or have they been changed? Are they the same murderous, um, um, immoral people that they were before? Or has God, maybe God, maybe one of them has been touched by God? Maybe one of them has been changed. Because Benjamin would have been in the crosshairs as soon as Joseph was gone out of the picture. Because Jacob, the father, would have poured his favoritism on Benjamin. And we see that. Where is Benjamin? Joseph needed to know. What did they do to him? Why isn't he here in the time of famine? And not just that, he wanted to see Benjamin face to face. He, he was still his, his, his brother. And so he needed to find out where they were. He needed to find out if his brothers were characterized by the sins continuing from their past or have they been changed. Not only does that principle applies to Jacob, but that is also um, applies to ourselves. Have we been changed by the faith that we have? Or do the sins characterize us that we committed in the past in the present? It doesn't mean that we've stopped sinning because we, we always sin. But do those same sins as we struggle with the past, that before coming to faith and that maybe struggle after coming to faith, do they still characterize us? Are they still continually there? Do they define who we are today? Because if one's faith is genuine, there's a growth, there's fruit, there's change, there's development. But if one has a faulty faith, it's the same. They're the same. They act the same way then. They act the same way now. There's an old saying, because if one's faith is genuine, the old saying goes like this. I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. God is at work to make us more like his son. And if our faith is genuine, if it's real, we should be able to point the point in our lives that God is at work changing me, that my life is different from what it used to be, that I love the Lord and I'm beginning to hate the sin that, that I do. And so Joseph needs to find out where Benjamin is. I want you to turn in your Bible this time to look at 1 John chapter 1. I want you to look at verses 5 through, through 10. Because once again, the epistle of John really gets into this aspect of the genuineness or the faultiness of one claims to have a faith. 1 John chapter 1, verse, verse 5, begins this way. This is the message that we heard from him and announced to you. Oh, it's also up here. So sorry. <laughs> that God is light, and in him there is no dark, darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so there needs to be a change. If we love the Lord and follow him, Paul says that we're a new creation. All things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. We're changed but if we're still characterized by the way that we used to be, then there's something faulty. It's easy for us to be a certain way when we're all by ourselves and then put on a mask when we're out in public. 
But your spouse knows, your kids knows how you are with them. Do you have uh, an issue with anger? Do you, do you have an issue with the tone of your voice? Because I'm to a place where for a believer, you should never lose your control, never be angry. You can get loud because I'm Italian, but that anger, that yelling, and I know about yelling because my parents were Italian, and we live in a yelling, screaming house. And there's aspects to where, for a believer, doesn't mean that we can't be mad. We shouldn't be angry. What are we characterized? Do you have the same struggles as you had when you were a teenager that you, that you bring in now, that you entertain privately? What is going on? How do you know your faith is genuine? On Sunday morning, you have a look, but come Monday morning, there's a whole entire different thought pattern going on. Only you know where your life is at. Are you defined? Are you characterized presently by the past sins that you are coming about? Go back to our passage in Genesis chapter 42, because it goes on to say that Joseph is speaking harsh to them. And he says, you're spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now, I'm sure with, with, with the Joseph brothers, they're in this queue of long people to get food. And all of a sudden, they, you know, everything's running smoothly. All right, get food. Okay, that's nice. And now, all of a sudden, he's speaking harshly. He's speaking angrily, if you would, towards them. And he says that, I believe that you are spies, having to come to look at the, in the literal aspect, is the naked parts of our land. And it was a fair accusation because it was a time for foreign enemies to sort of come to get food, but also to find out where is Egypt weak in their defense. And they say in verse 10, and they said to him, no, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And so they say the truth, sort of. They're, they're, not, they're not spies. But I'm sure in the back of their mind, as soon as they said that we are honest men, Joseph says to himself, you guys are many things, but honest is not one. Murderous, liars, thieves, greedy, immoral. I could go on, but... Honest is not one of them. For the brothers, they probably looked at themselves to say, well, we've done some bad things, but I'm not really as bad as some other people that I know. And in comparison, I'm okay. And in comparison to Egypt, we've done nothing wrong, and we're honest in that way. We've done nothing wrong to Egypt. And so it's so easy to just away one sin in comparison to something else. And that's exactly what Adam did. He blame-shifted. Right after they sinned and, and ate of the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3, he goes to God, God, you know, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and you gave her to me, I'm, I'm not to blame. He shifted the entire blame. And so in, in comparison, the same thing happened here. We really done nothing bad in Egypt. We're, we're honest. You know, we're not spies. But Joseph speaks loud and aggressive to them. Verse 12, and yet he said to them, but no, but you have come to look at the undefensive parts of our land. But they said to him, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. One is no longer alive. And Joseph said to them, it is said that I say to you that you are spies. By this you'll be tested by the life of Pharaoh, and you shall not go from this place un unless your younger, youngest brother comes here. And so Joseph is up front. I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you to see if you are honest men, if your, word, uh, if your word is true. And by the life of Pharaoh means it's a guarantee I'm going to test you, and you better pass the test. 
because he wants to see his brother. Just make sure. Because they're not honest men, and they could be lying here, but he doesn't know. He wants to see his brother. So he needs to answer the question, is Benjamin alive? And he's going to do it to see if their sins of their past characterizes um, their lives in the present. And so as we begin to sort of come to the table, and yes, there are six more tests to go, but we, we will get there ne next week. That's really what the Lord does for us because we come to the table realizing that by man's test, we will always fail that test because we are dependent upon ourselves. We know that we try to do things in, in our life to sort of silence our conscience, to sort of turn off the guilt and shame. But yet at the same time, we know what is right and what is wrong. We know that, and we learn that our sins need to be dealt with. And so, the Lord is going to judge us of our sins. I want you to look at one passage before we come to the table. Because as, um, as these tests sort of come about, they can come across very harshly that there is a judgment taking place. And, and for some who have a callous heart, we need to realize that things are harsh, that God is testing us, and he tries to sh uh, shaken our hard hearts. But also there are some whose conscience is just there, and they feel, they feel the overwhelmingness of guilt and shame. And we need to realize that the Lord can forgive us for whatever our past actions have been. Look at Revelation chapter 1 is the last passage that we're going to look at. Revelation chapter 1. We looked at it last week in Sunday school, but I just want to, I just want to look here. We have the Lord, Jesus Christ, appearing to the Apostle John in exile on the um, island of Patmos. And we have his, a description of John viewing him. In verse 5, we have that he's a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. And as the book begins to unfold, he's carrying a sword. Later on in the book, his, his robe is filled with blood, bringing about judgment. He will judge, yet he is faithful. He's the firstborn from, uh, from the dead, meaning he is, um, he is the one who is worthy to receive um, the rights of the firstborn. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the lion of Ju Judah. But look at the end of verse 5. He is all these things to judge man of their sins. But he loves us. In a very dark book, in a, a book in, in which will bring about the judgment of man and those who don't turn to him, we find that this aspect of love is presented for all those who turn to him and can have their sins forgiven. And that's exactly what the table does. The table is a demonstration that he died on the cross who was our substitute in our place. Because we don't have to be characterized by the sins of our past. We don't have to be weighed down with a guilty conscience. We could have all those things completely wiped away because his righteousness is given over to us. So as the men come forward, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, though our passage is not yet over and this is just a glimpse of the test, it shines to us where we are at and how genuine our faith may be. For Father... You have called us to have a life that has been 
and show forth fruit that has been changed. But yet, Father, there may not be one who's, who knows that assurance that they may not only be weighed down with sin, but they, they, that they can have their sins forgiven. There may be another who is here and realize that if they were to die tonight, they have no assurance that they would be in heaven with you. And so, Father, the gospel is there for all who can turn from their sins and turn from you. And so, Father, as we come to partake at the table, we thank you that you are one who can change a life so that we can bring your name glory for what you have accomplished. So thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.